Brides en film. Second part. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Reads on Film podcast, coming to you live again, uh, this time remotely, uh, no longer in our undisclosed European studio. We're back for another, well, for part two of um, the Reads on Film Awards. So if you haven't checked out part one, please uh, go back and give that a listen. Uh, a brief recap on the format, we'll be nominating four films in total, one for each of us and picking one winner for each. Um, but before we do that, I'll give you a quick reminder of our um, Reads on Film team. Uh, so I am Callum Reed. Theo Reed here. I am Stephen. Come on. Right. Uh, sorry, I guess... I, I'm Nathan. You <laughs> cut me off so much, sorry. Why? Sorry, uh, uh, I'm Nathan, hi. Okay. Uh, anything else p- anyone wants to mention before before we start? <laughs> what the hell is Nathan All right, doing? Sorry, composure. Sorry. Giggles. Um, our first awards. Our first award for tonight is the Andrei Zawowski Award um, for Best Film I Didn't Understand. Those of you who don't know, Andrei Zawowski. Uh, director of uh, on the on the on, on the silver globe which is another great film she should check out um, so the nominations uh, for best film i didn't understand are as follows we have ennis main um, again uh, a big big favorite terrorizes symbio psycho taxoplasm and upstream color so yeah, I mean, some of these films we will have talked about before. So uh, maybe let's start with Symbia Psychotaxoplasm. I think a film which hasn't been mentioned yet so far in the award. Um, so yeah, let's let's discuss that. I believe that was someone's nomination. I think was that Nathan's, mine? right? I believe that yeah. was mine. Yeah. yeah. Nathan, why yeah. did you nominate um, Symbia Psychotaxoplasm? So Symbio Psychotaxoplasm. Nice. To be honest, I mean, my misunderstanding of the film begins at the name, which is a mouthful. Um, we haven't, we haven't talked. Have we talked about it? No, yet? we haven't at all. Get, yeah, we haven't. So if you can give a, if you can give a so, three sentence, yeah, summary. Uh, uh psychotaxoplasm. It's an experimental film, kind of deconstructionist, where William Greaves, the director is filming himself making a, a short film in Central Park, New York. And then he has another camera operator filming him make that film. Uh, and then there's a, a one more level of abstraction where you have another camera operator filming the whole of that taking place while also filming other things going on in the park, people's reaction to the filmmaking. Um, it's a very different film. Um, I think for the time it came out in the... 1968 i mean it's I, don't, I haven't seen anything like that that kind of approaches that level of meta uh from that kind of a time uh in cinema at least okay nice 
as I mentioned when I was doing a bit of research for this, apparently his original concept was to apply Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to the film. Now, I, I don't have a particularly good science background, so I can't <laughs> comment. But if any, any listeners have a, any kind of uh, thesis on this, um, please do send us an email or a comment. We'd be very grateful. Theo, can maybe weigh in on that one? Theo, do you want to weigh in? Science background? Uh, I'll pass. pass. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, yeah, I mean, certainly, a, certainly a, a bit of an incomprehensible film. But yeah, let's move on then to Ennis Main. Uh, I believe that was my nomination. It kind of speaks for itself. I personally really like the film, but as we, as you would have heard in part one, it has a very divisive piece uh, by Mark Jenkin. Um, not a huge amount of dialogue to grapple with. Um, very few number of characters and a lot of the film works on a kind of imagistic, symbolic level. I think in the review we said it kind of tries to work on the, the nerves of the audience rather than its intellect. Um, and I think for that reason, it, it, it can kind of seem obtuse uh, on uh, first viewing. Um, and I know certain other uh, members of the team and indeed some of our listeners as well uh, felt this film was a little bit uh, too hard to decipher um but so that that's my nomination uh let's move on to terrorizers um terrorize that was me actually um so terrorizers well i think we started the review by saying uh, describing it as a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma and certainly terrorizers is a strange film it's part of the taiwanese new wave where they were moving away from sort of linear narratives and just having these films with lots of impressionistic cinematography. There is a story behind Terrorizers. In fact, there are four storylines which are sort of interwoven. But I mean, to be honest, they're difficult to make sense of. And I don't think trying to work out what's going on really serves the film itself particularly well. Um, it is a film about Im images, which I think I said in part one, really. It's about images and reinterpreting those images. Um, so that's why I would nominate Terrorizers. I think it was incomprehensible, but a beautiful film. Thank you. OK, um, let's move on to the last nomination, which is Upstream Colour. Um, again, a film we've talked about uh, in some detail previously, and, and no doubt we will do again. But yeah, why did why did you nominate it? Uh, yeah, so as you said, we've talked about it a lot, so I won't spend much time explaining what it's about. But essentially, uh, this couple are kind of entangled in like a life cycle um, related to a sort of, I guess, like an ageless organism kind of thing. Um, from a lava harvested uh, down a river uh, and essentially even though I think I said before that narratively it wasn't the hardest to follow um, the layering of ideas is and how quickly it reaches its conclusion is very uh, it's easy to get lost in the complexity of it uh, and also, it was just a great film, as evidenced by winning the Best Picture Award. Thank you, Theo. Um, yeah, so let's 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 discuss then. What where where are we landing on this? I think for me, <clears throat> s 
it's, it's really tough. Symbi- Symbio, I'm still... I think, to be honest, it's the one I've probably spent the least time trying to understand, and therefore it's the one I understand the least Why currently. Um, what, were you, what were you saying about I, Heisenberg's on well, let's, let's remember it's the, the best film I didn't understand, so not necessarily the most confusing. I think, I think for me, what separates Symbio from the rest of the nominations... Sorry, I'm talking to the mic. Um, I think what uh, separates Symbio from the rest of the nominations is that not only is the, the sort of film, the, 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 the film in itself, well, I guess what is happening on screen kind of confusing. You're not quite sure whether there's a plot or, or whatever. I, I guess the intention of the director is kind of a puzzle to be solved. Um, and again, like I when I watched this, uh, for me, it, instantly brought back watching like uh, Nathan Fielder's work, Nathan For You, but I guess more specifically the rehearsal, which he released last year, if anyone's seen that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, the it. kind of, you're watching this, it, yeah, I, I, it was it was probably the best bit of media I saw last year. I, it, it was, it, you're watching it unfold and it kind of, um, you're, you're trying to piece it together, but at the same time, you're trying to figure out what is the director doing here? What am I actually watching? Is this a documentary? Is it, is it a drama? Is it just an experimental piece? Is he trying to make a commentary on something? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I came out of it not really knowing. I think it's a good example. Of what a... were you going to say about the uncertainty of it? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. All, all, I, all I, I, I read was that um, apparently Heisenberg's uncertainty principle was what he wanted to apply as part of the original concept. Now, I'm vaguely familiar with that, but not, not in detail. So I, I don't really know. But I think what, what is interesting for me is that clearly they, um, that well, the director, like, I feel like he's setting this up in a way that it isn't sort of deliberately making the film incomprehensible, but it's kind of deliberately posing some challenges and some questions uh, to the viewer. And like you said, Nathan, is sort of creating this puzzle for us to solve. And, and I do quite like that aspect of it. It's kind of posing us this... And, and not just for not just for us to solve, but for the crew yeah, themselves. And exactly. there's a brilliant scene halfway through the, through the film where... Um, the kind of the crew sit down and they're, and they're kind of, they're like, what's going yeah. on here? It's like, are, are we part of this sort of big, this grand scheme by the director? And they're all throwing out their theories. Very well articulated. One mm. thing that I thought, yeah. uh, I, I wonder if today, if you sat a crew down and which, which kind of <laughs> makes you think is this scripted because mm. it's so, it, everyone has their own take. And um, yeah. yeah, I guess I, at I, the I end just... of the day, it's looking at how the concept of a film and, how that could break down by filming the actors that are meant to be in the film themselves. Uh, and then is that all, are they like, are they still um, being true to their role in the original film that they're meant to be acting in? So what, as in whether, whether you can, you can change a performance by mm. sort of creating this, this greater film around the film you're filming or. I or guess that's where more... the, what were you saying? I was going to say get like get a more genuine performance. Is that is that what you're saying? It's almost like a like a an attempt to uh, like uh, create some new method of um, of acting or performance or a new a new method for direction, I guess. A new method for getting the most out of your actors. Or I think that's a really good point, Nathan. I mean, in the in the absence of um, Theo's. 
uh, masters in physics. Uh, I mean, my sort of my memory of vague memories of the uncertainty pins principle were about if you have a particle, an atomic particle like a photon or something like that, you can know its speed. But if you know its speed, you won't know its position. If you know its position, you won't know its speed. I think that's right. Isn't yeah, it? Theo? the uncertainty and between I think, paired physical quantities. And, yeah, and I think what what and this is just a guess on my part. What he's trying to say is, I mean, there are so many as Nathan has articulated so many different aspects to this film, and it was certainly my experience of watching it was that you think you've got a handle on, say, the director's intention. But then other aspects of the film sort of slip away. Yeah. So you're never really sure where you are. I guess also... And I I, I would agree. I mean, for me, it was the most confusing of the films, I think. Well, on the uncertainty principle, um, although I did plead ignorance earlier, I've also heard a, (laughs) a particular interpretation of the uncertainty principle, which many physicists have taken is that while it seems as though we can we can only know either a, a speed or a position velocity and position at, the, at, at one we can only know one at a certain time some some physicists have argued that in fact it what that means is there isn't a sort of ontological incompleteness with the particle <laughs> itself and what what heisenberg's uncertainty principle shows is that reality in itself has this kind of paradoxical inconsistency and maybe rather than just showing that right. we can't grasp all of reality at once, reality itself is not graspable even from a God's eye position, which I think, again, introduces the concept of the kind of director God who's placed himself in this movie and sort of created a whirling sea of contradiction and paradox around himself. We've become yeah. a phil- uh, well, philosophy well, and well, welcome to <laughs> Welcome to the Reads on Physics podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Just to, I think we'd yeah. better move on. Just to bring it down to just to bring it down to earth, I think I'll say probably the most direct thing um comparison with uncertainty is the idea of once you like observe something, uh the experiment breaks down, right? We've all heard that teach you that yeah. in primary school, or whatever. Like yeah. ele- collapse of the wave firing electrons. Collapse of the wave function, exactly. Actually, like, I think you, I, you are the observable. I'm actually gonna dial in Sean Carroll. Yeah, by observing it, you break. That's making <laughs> Okay, right. Um and I guess this no, but the direct link right, here well, would be that by filming the actors, by perceiving the particle, you change its behaviour by perceiving the actors you then ch- change their behavior as they're acting in this film. And we've got that in three layers here. So I'd I say like that's that. my I, main, yeah. that would be like a direct link between. I think that's a... But yeah, <laughs> back that, to the other nominations, maybe. I think maybe. most of our listeners would have, t- would have dialed <laughs> off at this point. <laughs> Just turned off the podcast. Um, yeah. Let's... Um... I mean, it seems like we're sort of coming to a consensus, yeah. uh, even though we haven't gone into too much discussion on the others. Yeah. So I think maybe we will now um, open the award envelope, which I have here, um, and I will I'll just have a look Wait. here and see what the uh, winner of uh, the Andrzej Zawowski Award for the best film I didn't understand. Wait, hold on! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we haven't decided. Symbiopsychotaxoplasm. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> well done. 
Right. I retroactively I, forgot. I, I, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. I'm yeah, happy with that. Yeah. I mean, one one of the reviewers actually said about the film, no plot that we can see, no end that we can see, action we can't follow. Wow. That sums it up. Really. Yeah. Ahead of its time. Ahead of its time, really. The film that... Although I, I do prefer the rehearsal, but I think, yeah. Yeah, different. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's move swiftly on uh, after that riveting uh, mm. deep dive into quantum theory um, <laughs> to... Uh, our next category, which is a, a big one, a titan, uh, best original score. Um, so up for nomination, uh, we have Upstream Colour, yet again, uh, Shane Carruth, um, directed and produced the, the score. Then we have um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is uh, um, scored by Emil Mosseri. We then have Björk herself, uh, who was producing the soundtrack for Dancer in the Dark. And last but not least, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, uh, which was scored by uh, the one and only Miles Davis. Um, so I'll start by talking about Upstream Colour. Um, first thing to say is, please, even if you haven't seen the film yet, just go, in, go on to Spotify, um, where you can also find our podcast, and listen to the soundtrack for Upstream Colour. It's such a fantastic um, ambient score that's full of like all these nice little um, electronic effects and sizzles and um, piano loops. Um, it's quite a sort of relaxing and calming, almost, I would say, uh, what's the word, like anaesthetizing score. Um, it puts you at ease while the film itself is sort of doing all this kind of crazy stuff in the background. Um, yeah, I, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and again, considering it's a, a film, I think that re- a, a score that really embodies embodies the film and kind of moves along with it um, and, and takes you to loads of different places. There's also a lot of it which is, and again, I'm going to have to defer to my more filmically uh, well informed members of the uh, of the team. But I, there's this kind of blending of uh, diegetic and non diegetic sounds, I believe it's called, where a lot of the so obviously one of the main characters in the film is the sampler, and he's doing all this stuff with music on screen and then that sort of also starts to blend with the uh with the music as well um, which i thought was really great um but yeah let's move on to uh, dancer in the dark uh, by Björk. now obviously this film is a musical so it's a bit different yeah um so dance in the dark which we haven't talked about yet um directed by the lars von trier um a musical um which I thought it'd be a real shame if it wasn't nominated for this category. Um, Bjork, I think Bjork did the majority of the soundtrack. Um, and it's essentially a film about uh, Selma, who's played by Bjork. And she's a Czech immigrant living in America during the 1960s, I think it was, the 60s. Um, and she essentially is working sort of double time in this this factory job uh, to support her son and herself. Very low wage. And the, I guess with the crux is she has bad eyesight. Uh, and it's a sort of degenerative eyesight disease that her son also has. Um, and she's working this job to try and support him and, and get his, try and save up enough money to repair, to get a cure for his, or a surgery to repair his eyes. Um, 
So the soundtrack itself, I mean, it's Bjork, right? Like that's really enough said. Um, she's at her best here. She, um, it's kind of these, the, the musical moments, they play out as uh, almost like these dreamlike sequences. The idea is that she kind of, she sort of date to, I guess, to remove herself from the, her like worries and the troubles of her de- everyday experience. She, um, she sort of daydreams off and the, the, the world, this sort of, dre- sort of dreary handheld camera shot, uh, VHS looking uh, world uh, kind of comes alive into this magical musical ensemble. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, it's just, it's a great soundtrack and it's a great contrast to what is actually quite a dark and sad film. Nice. Okay, uh, let's move on to The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Which I believe was you, Theo. Yes. Um, so I nominated Last Black Man in San Francisco's score because um, it fits the themes of the film so well. Um, it's this kind of really good blend of like orchestral classicism, uh, which I guess is like, I, I might have to check this, but relies a lot on like simplicity and like following the rules um uh adhering to this specific structure but then blends this with like soul and jazz music and this creates that um dichotomy within the film which perfectly fits with this uh the themes of losing an identity and gentrification and the old versus the new and it's really not like any other films. It's not a score. It's a score that's very different to other films that are releasing other modern films. Um, it's grandiose, uh, which really fits with the like um, Jimmy Fails, um, how he sees, how he perceives the city, and these amazing like grand houses, uh, and it just adds like an extra layer of like poetry to the film, um, and yeah. That's... Great. Okay. Um, well, that, that, lastly, then let's go to uh, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, which is I'm going to get tired of saying that. <laughs> but uh, Miles I Davis, I so, really enjoy saying it now. <laughs> I'm going to just call it Symbio because I, yeah, it rolls off the tongue. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, so many great soundtracks. I should mention that um, they're all available to listen to on our reads on yes. record also playlist on spotify. Yeah. spotify i'll put a link to that on the uh substack Good as well plug. but great soundtracks but for me well miles davis what are you gonna say i mean i was only aware of miles davis scoring a film um on one instance actually before seeing this it was uh Elevator to the Scaffold or Ascenseur pour le Chaffaut, um, a French New Wave film, um, which he did as an improvisation. And that was coming from the age of bebop. But here with Symbio, we have something fairly different. I mean, we've talked about how the film was difficult to understand. There was a sense of chaos about it, but it was intelligent chaos. And I think the 
sense of contained chaos, but also spontaneity was really driven and propelled by um, Miles Davis' score, which actually comes from an album which he'd released um, shortly beforehand called In a Silent Way. Um, but it really is driven by the sort of ebb and flow of what I would consider to be an actually a, a proto-ambient kind of music. It's before he's left bebop, he hasn't arrived at fusion yet, but he's doing something which at the time nobody really could get their head around. Um, yeah, Miles nice. Davis. I was just thinking. Has to be uh... here. Doesn't that because do, he didn't if he recorded it before the film came out? Doesn't that technically disqualify him? Don't we have to Johnny Greenwood him and say sorry, your your score, your it's not an original score because because you recorded it before. Wait, did they do that, Johnny? Yeah, on well, There Will Be Blood. But I think he's like recorded. There was a track on There Will Be Blood that was like based on a track he'd already put, set put out, and they uh, and they say he couldn't be nominated for the Oscar. Uh, Brutal. Uh, shout out Johnny if you're listening. I think uh, has he won anything? But I think it. Sorry, go on, Dan. Not in these awards, he hasn't, no. But I was just about to say, <laughs> although he had recorded it, he had oh, not okay. released it. Wow. Yeah. So I think he gets a getaway, which is why it was, I think it may well have been nominated to other awards yeah. as the best. I mean, I, I love it. Was it just one track? Sorry, Doug, was it just one track from In a Silent Way? No, the whole thing is is it right in a silent way yeah the whole, yeah. The whole thing yeah um yeah but the album itself i believe if i'm not mistaken is only two tracks is that right or have i completely made that up yeah yeah, yeah. that's um, right yeah i mean i yeah i loved obviously i love mars davis love in a silent way um there are so many good again so many good scores that we didn't we didn't add in the nominations that you know i, I can't even really start mentioning house. Yeah, house in the earth uh crimes of the future a couple of howard shaw ones in there that were amazing but we just don't have the time to cover them. I would just to comment on a couple of the other things. And for me, why in a silent way isn't in the conversation is because I mean, firstly to go to dancer in the dark, one thing that you didn't mention, Nathan, that I thought was one of the highlights of the score for me was this, uh, that opening, I, th- I can't remember what it's called in the soundtrack. It's like overture and it might, it might not be Bjork. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure, but obviously the whole film is about the loss of eyesight and it's quite a, bl- a bleak, uh, color grading or whatever you call it it's a very very kind of gray looking mm. film but this opening mm. sort of three minutes or so is just like this sort of sort of colorful visualizer style explosion of color on the screen which i think again was quite rare for the, i think it's early 2000s or late 90s the film comes out yeah it, it's it quite a rare thing like to see, on, see on, in, in a film but it, it's accompanied by this early digital yeah, and and the, the, this sort of yeah. burst of color is and again it's quite it's really foreshadowing because you don't really know the film is about blindness at this point, but watching it for a second time, you sort of, it's, it's very striking, but yeah, it's, it's, it's accompanied with this beautiful kind of string overture, which just washes over you. I, I think obviously um, Lars von Trier is very big on the kind of heavy orchestral stringy uh, Wagnerian, mm. dare I say, um, <laughs> introductions <laughs> to his films, um, like similar in melancholia as well. Nice. Um, but yeah, we won't say any more on that. And then, sorry, just very briefly as well, Last Man in San Francisco, I think, actually has almost been pulling me away from my own nomination of Upstream Colour just because of how listenable it is. It's one of the one of the two Upstream Colour and Last Black Man in San Francisco that I've been revisiting time and time again since I watched them. Um, I think what it also really captures as well as the theme of gentrification is just that kind of nostalgic and that longing feeling. There's something about the music that's very mournful and uh, uh, 
uh, sentimental almost um, in quite a sort of heartfelt and longing way that I really liked about it, um, which again... Fits Especially in that opening film. scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially in that opening with the guy um, reading out about like how the city's changing and the climate change stuff going on in the background. Yeah. Um, Fantastic film. It also gives it kind of a warmth. The f- it matches the warmth of the film. Yeah, so that that's Last Black Man. Is there any one that really I'd be willing to sort of secede from my nomination uh, as an award? But I'm I, I'm I'm keen to hear your thoughts on the, on the other nominations. Um, well, I I'll start. I mean, I really liked um, Dancer in the Dark as well. I mean, as you said, Callum the opening overture is fantastic uh, it is basically the opening to an opera um in the same way as you said that von Trier, he repeats this with melancholia and bjork's sort of vocal performance throughout the film is yeah it makes your hair stand on end it's oh, really that particularly impressive. at the end as well which we'll yeah, come to yeah. actually um so i don't want to say too much yeah. about it but um yeah. yeah, but also Last Black Man in San Francisco, eminently, eminently listenable. Um, it's some, it's a film score that, yeah, it's very attractive, easy to listen to. Um, but if I had to move away from Miles Davis, yeah, it would have to be Dancer in the Dark. I think. My, my, uh, see, I would. Oh, sorry, go go, no, I was just going to say very quickly. I was going to say. My objection to I... Dancer in the Dark is some of the bits are like, I, I mean, maybe it's deliberate, but some of the singing is laughing. Also, Helen, what? <laughs> like the scene, <laughs> the song the... where they're both on the train and Bjork's like, oh, I'm looking at the stars and that, and then the guy comes in, he's like, yes, you're looking at the stars. Oh, and I'm just it's like, it's a musical. Oh. What do you expect? Yeah, but it's, oh, he's, I mean, he's very bad at singing. No, that's the song on the train. That... Oh, I've seen it's called okay, the track's called I've seen it all, and obviously there's the version I've with seen... where Tom York sings it in the in the single version, and he's doing. And she did it at Coachella as well. It's it's like, fantastic. I've seen it all, and I don't like it all. Is it Tom York? I didn't even know there was a Tom York. Thing. Yeah. But hang on, hang on so a you're... second. Are we meant to be nominating or talking about uh, soundtracks and scores here, not songs? Yeah, but that song. So it's a soundtrack or score I mean, as that, a whole. That, that, that guy in particular. So there were two people who were quite bad at singing. It was the police officer mm. and and the love interest were both <laughs> letting down. I mean, obviously you're up against Bjork. Letting so down the entire. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So you want to say? But that that for me, I guess Radiohead weren't quite at their peak at, at, at that no. time. Oh really? I mean, maybe it hadn't popped into uh, Bjork's head Shout to out Johnny feature Tom York at that point. Um, but yeah, I, that, wait, I was going to quickly just say. Gone. I was going to quickly say on the uh, soundtrack one thing again that I really liked about it was, as I described, the, the, how these sort of these songs, you sort of fall into them from the scene of uh, these dream sequences. But often the instrumentation in the song arrives from the again uh, I'll mention the diegetic and non-diegetic sound. You kind of move from this diegetic sound within the scene in the factory scene. There's all these m- big moving like uh, metal factory like pistons and levers, metallic sounds that then become this instrumentation for uh, that backs you know Bjork's Bjork's vocals. And I I that was something that I really liked about it. Yeah. Um. I, I have to say, um. Again, if I wasn't going to give it to my nomination, Dungeon in the Dark. 
I would probably give it to I'd probably give it to Miles Davis to be honest. Or Symbio Psychotaxiplasm. Just I mean to, last but... Just to oh, jump okay. on the train of if I didn't give it to Last Black Man. Yeah. I'd have to also probably give it to Symbio because I feel like similar to Last Black Man, it feels like it fits the theme of the film tonally so well. Mm. Kind of just drifts along as a... A chaos. um, Yeah, exactly. It really fits the, um, like, just, yeah. Nice. Of what's on screen. So no one likes Upstream Colour. Because I have to say, guys, I've been watching your Spotify now playings and I've seen it come up a lot of times, so... I, I hope you're willing to put your money where your mouth is here. And when I next go on Spotify, I want to lose, I want to see Miles Davis being played. When the Spotify rap comes around, we can t- determine yeah. what really. Also, yeah, the, the nomination isn't the best. I I was kind of saying in the context of the film, like yes, I I've I love the upstream color score to listen to, like while I'm working. It's very peaceful. Sorry, working. Yeah. <laughs> what work? When you're working on high stacks, on certain things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, when I'm reading, whatever. Dad, has it been reading? Well, yours? you know my views. <laughs> you know my views. <laughs> you know my views about Miles Davis. Forget my view about Theo. Um, I yeah. Uh, you know, upstream colour and last okay. black man in San Francisco, perfectly pleasant. But if I want to sit down and listen to a soundtrack, it's going to have to be in a silent way every time. Oh, mine would me. be upstream colour for sure. Mine would be upstream colour as well. Wait, hold on. You just, you just said Symbio here. No, that's his. Oh, if you were to sit down and listen. Yeah, but if I was to sit yeah. down. No, and we're, talk, we're not talking about. Or it would be last. Black as you said, Theo, we're talking about within the context of the yeah, film. The I, context. I have to disagree with the idea that in a silent way is the most connected, close to the ground. The ground being the film that it's in. And I, I, I do. Th- I know. Obviously, I know that. <laughs> obviously, I know that that it was made before the film came out. But I do genuinely feel like it's missing that that like super connection to the film like for me black man uh black the last black man in san francisco takes the cake for that one of the again to refer to one of the quotes from our yeah. review it part of what makes that film so good is it creates in in a sense in me of a nostalgia for a place that i've i've i haven't spent my childhood and made me feel like oh i miss living in san francisco and i think the score has a big part to play in that in the way that it kind of evokes uh nostalgia um but yeah, that's beside the point. We have to come to I, a, a I agree. decision here. And it is it's extremely unique as a score. Okay. Ambitious, experimental, but yet feels A final word. Without uh, Miles Davis score, I don't think Symbio, which we all recognise as a great film, I don't think it would work. It wouldn't exist. I disagree. I, I think they are. I, What's your evidence? I, I disagree. disagree. Yeah. I, disagree. I, I think I think it's integral to the film, and I think it, it is like the perfect soundtrack for the film. I do think Callum's case about Last Black Man is is very strong, and I think Ooh. it's probably enough to, to, to pull me over. I, I, oh. I, it's so integral to the film. It's it is it's a very wholesome soundtrack. 
it's 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 when you hear that soundtrack it's distinct it it conjures memories i mean i watched the film last night so <laughs> it's a little bit unfair but it it, it it conjures uh memories of of watching <laughs> <laughs> That's what's ridiculous. Memories. No, no, but no, but but it's. It, I don't know. It, I, I again. I, I guess it's that nostalgia for a place you've never been. That it, it, it's. Yeah, full full false memory syndrome. It's called Nathan. Yeah, it fills you with warmth, and maybe like we just need a bit more positivity in the world. Okay. Wow. Oof. Okay. Have, is have that we, a last I minute think, plot twist then? I think it's. I think yeah, it's yeah. last black man. Well, isn't it? well hang, yeah. well, hang on. Let me let me open. The opening is enough to win it for me. Are you gonna tell us what that is? What do a rendition? I can't re oh, okay. do it now off the cuff. But if you get it after, you could play it as a clip. Well, okay, yeah. Um, to, to avoid but DMCA uh, attacks, we'll be keeping clips to a minimum, but we'll kind of talk over the clip, so maybe the clip might be coming in now, for example. But first of all, I mean, we don't actually know who's won, so let me open the envelope uh, and we'll have a drum roll, please. And the winner for best original score is The Last Black Man in San yes. Francisco. Uh, scored by Emil Mosseri. She is looking like he's about to come up and collect the award himself. Did you write the score? <laughs> Were you involved at all? <laughs> right, well, that's that one. No, then. I wasn't. But I'm um, glad it won. I think what we'll actually do here at this point uh, to break up the uh, uh, awards ceremony is go to uh, one particular uh, special award which we're presenting tonight. Uh, and that is the Turner Prize Walkout Award. Hi everyone, my name is Jo, and when it comes to film appreciation, I reckon I represent Jo Public. I also happen to be mum to three of the reads on film. I think you can probably guess which three. So I want to thank Reads on Film for the opportunity to present this award which I think is given in recognition of the sometimes challenging watching experience this season. And without further ado, the nominations for the award are as follows. In the Earth, Ennis Main, and Upstream Colour. And the winner of the award is Ennis Main with an initial walkout time of just 20 minutes. Why? Um, well, many things. Um, it was the dearth of dialogue, the tedious, repetitive writing in the log, and I suppose I found the pseudo-psychiatric content rather irritating. The girl on the roof, was it a flashback or a true hallucination? Who knows? Who cares? I didn't, and that was why I walked out. Thank you. Let's hope that next season is a bit more mainstream for people like me. Thanks again. Well, uh, thank you for that uh, interesting uh, yeah. uh, award there. Mum made some very good points there, didn't she? <laughs> 
that was expected. Mm. And I think <laughs> yeah. probably, as we'll probably find, in line with some of our other audience members. Okay, so um, now we have an award for best editing, and uh, for this award, uh, we'll, we'll hand over all four nominations to our editor in chief, which is uh, Nathan Reed. Um, but I will read out the nominations nonetheless. Uh, so, for best editing, we have the last black man in San Francisco, um, which is edited by David Marks, and we have Upstream Color um, by Shane Carruth and David Lowry. Uh, we then have Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, again, uh, and that's William Graves. And lastly, uh, House, which hasn't come up yet, and that was edited by Nabuo Agawa. So I'll hand over to Nathan to walk us through why he picked those films. Okay, uh, thanks, Colin. Uh, so I guess when looking at the best editing, it's always quite tricky to sort of unpick that what, I guess, is the editing where does, well, I guess where the editing begins and where the cinematography ends, where the director's input may have come in. Um, so really, when looking at it, I'm, I'm kind of trying to assess it in more of a holistic sense. How did the editing serve the wider story? Um, you know, it's, I'm going to be looking a little bit at how the cinematography works as well, because it's impossible to, like, to distinguish that directly from the editing, um, at all times at least. Um, so I guess let's start off with... Mm, let's start off with Symbiotes. We've talked about that already today um, on this podcast. Uh, Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, uh, I guess the editing uh, by William Greaves, who was also the director, and uh, funnily enough, began his career as an editor. Um, I think the editing is so crucial to this film, and it's so crucial to what makes the film stand out, and kind of, uh, it's, it's so crucial to what makes the film uh a kind of chaotic, uh, confusing puzzle labyrinth that it actually is. Um, we get cuts to uh, people sit watching the film. I, I mean, the film opens with um, this kind of split screen effect and you're seeing di two different cameras rolling at the same time. And that kind of introduces you to the concept of the film and the kind of the way that this film is going to be carried. Um, okay, I'll keep it brief. Um, so Symbiopsychotaxiplasm, just editing that was just crucial to the story. Like the, the, the film wouldn't exist without that, with, without the editing style it had. Um, yes. Um, and I, I think it's also just quite interesting because he's editing a film. It kind of plays into the wider kind of idea of the film of what he was trying to do with it. And at the end of the day, as the director, he had that final choice in editing the film. Um, and the film that is often a, that is about kind of directorial control and, and things like that, it, it kind of I mean, it fits. Uh, moving on, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, I think the editing in this is like very colourful. Uh, it's full of like character. Um, a, a very, I mean, similar to the film, which I think uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. A lot of what made the film so good was the kind of characterization and the the kind of the general setting and feeling of the film and the uh, the kind of heart of it. And I think the editing was kind of fun and playful. We had lots of slow-mo shots, um, sort of messing with time. Uh, a lot of these kind of very creative uh, uh, visual moments. I remember one in particular. There was, uh, there's this kid who gets hit in the head by a rock or something. A girl throws something and the camera kind of becomes this 
object that she throws and it hits the skin in the head. Just like fun creative filmmaking um, that, uh, I don't know, it's distinct and uh, kind of merits the film as one of probably one of the better Esther films. Um, and then we have Upstream Colour. Okay, so Upstream Colour, very different from our previous, uh, like our other nominations. Uh, a, a kind of non-linear film, and it sort of uses this to its advantage in the editing. Uh, it's kind of non-linear editing style, cutting in dialogue, like doing jump cuts within dialogue, is something that I always quite like. It means you sort of have to pick apart uh, a conversation. Sometimes you sometimes you'll enter a scene or a conversation halfway through, and you'll have to determine yourself what like where where you're at. Um, yeah, um, and. Also, just some very nice uh, use of time dilation. I think in the in the cutting with Upstream Color, uh, there was one scene in particular where she wakes up in the bed, and the, there's this long kind of take. Well, not long take, but sort of a, a number of different shots of each sort of limb of hers kind of flaying out, and we get these great movements. And I don't know, I just really like that. And then the worms start crawling inside of her yes, skin. Yes, right? you see the worms in her skin. Um, that that's a very yeah. And one more house, which is a, I, I think it would have been terrible to not nominate a house because the editing like played such a role in what made the film so brilliant for me. Uh, yeah, I mean the house editing was like the most bo- some of the most bonkers editing I've ever seen in any film ever, um, and I think part of what makes it such a cult classic. Um, it just op- the the film opens with like this strange montage of cuts and wipes it's like someone who's just taken all the rushes thrown it into an editing software and just just gone effects effects effect um just gone absolutely crazy with it um and i think it does calm down a little bit at least after that scene um and i was a bit worried that the kind of over stimulation was going to put off some of my housemates i'd sort of forced to watch the film um but no i i mean it was just it was good fun at the end of the day um and all kinds of cool experimental stuff at the end of the you know sometimes just something a bit different and a bit quirky um you know it's something new i think for me i have to say that house the editing style in house really reminded me of a powerpoint presentation i made in year two um yeah just like sparkles, <laughs> bangs, wallops, like every like it was yeah. like someone had gone down a list of all of the effects they had on there. Far much thought there. goes into like, what, yeah, what yeah, effects you can. Ooh, I wonder yeah. what this one does. Yeah, um, and that was one of the, my sort of one of the smaller flaws mm. of the film, which overall sort of triggered my mind. You thought the editing was a flaw of the occasions. film. I mean, it just it added to the already chaotic and at times quite abrasive. Uh, film watching experience um so i mean maybe there were moments of yeah i think it, i think it was Perhaps they were moments of accidental brilliance um but yeah i don't know yeah it, i think you would be right in saying that at points it did feel like throwing pain at a wall and seeing what stuck um but i, I honestly think there were, there were some really like strong scenes in house that were bizarre but also kind of carried some emotional weight and um, I don't know, we're, we're just pretty um, pretty gripping. Yeah, I mean, I think in defence of House, I mean, my, yeah, my recollection is that the director made this in collaboration with his daughter, 
who was about 10 or something, and she co-wrote it with him. And he was really trying to make a film from a 10-year-old girl's perspective. So all of that... Yeah, all of that bubblegum sort of stuff um, made sense. And it was... I didn't find it grating. I found it shocking at times, but quite an attractive film to watch. Um, I think, though, Nathan's description of the editing of um, Symbio was really on point, though. I mean, I was struck by how inventive the editing was, particularly the use of not only split screen, but sometimes there was a sort of triple split screen um, imaging Mm. And the way he cut between the actors who seem to be actually trying to portray moments of genuine drama and emotion and then cut away to, you know, all of these different layers which you've talked about of people watching people. I just thought that was really, really very clever. And it also, um, he exposed, if you like, the artifice behind filmmaking. So, uh, yeah, Mm. I would have gone for that one. Yeah, I, I actually failed to mention that, that the kind of, I, th- I think some of these almost behind the scenes takes of, uh, I mean, they're filming in Central Park, right? Um, and there's moments where you get like this random homeless dude come up, comes up to them and starts asking about films. And I don't know, to me, that like really resonated, like trying to make films in dodgy car parks in Norbury. I don't. I don't think we need I've to know been, any more about yeah, that. Okay, I've <laughs> swiftly I've on. Had very similar encounters, you know. <laughs> yeah. but I, I think it's true as well. You know, you, you, you make a film, and and suddenly there's something about just cam, just turning on cameras that just attracts members of the public, and you get you get the craziest characters you ever meet trying to make a film. Theo, why don't you come in to give us some of your uh, editing takes if you if you have any. I agree about Symbio. I thought the editing was largely like um, a large part of what made the film. Um, it's all about like this perspective of the cameraman, perspective of this, per- perceiving the actors doing this, the watching other people doing that. I don't know. I thought the editing was a large um, part of what made the film, uh, just what made the film. Uh, yeah. I'd give it to that myself. Any other films honest. you want to come in on? Again, guys, Upstream Colour has been nominated, but I'm not here. I mean, I'll always... Buzz. I mean, for me... Oh, I was just oh, going to say, yeah. I'll always plug uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. The cinematography <laughs> is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that goes without saying, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I also watched Last Black Man again recently, and I have to say the editing didn't stand out for me personally. The two, I, I think we talked, we've talked about this briefly uh, before, Nathan, but I think for me, there's two very distinct. There's editing which almost is trying to be as seamless and invisible as possible, and then there's editing which is deliberately very stylized. And I think, obviously, it goes without saying that House is editing is is clearly very stylized um but i think as well both upstream color and symbio seem to follow a, a similar um similar pattern where they're trying to use mm. editing to so to evoke something more than just sort of making the film seem smooth and seamless and telling the story in the, in, a, in a in the right way um I, I think obviously from what you've said uh, the last black man in san francisco also had that kind of playful um, editing style but I just didn't pick up on it as much but again I just uh, and I mentioned it previously I think the, the the kind of deliberate chopping and fragmented nature of up, upstream colors editing really 
again sort of added to the story added to the sense that although what you were seeing and what you were hearing and and following along plot wise was quite comprehensible it added to the sense of disorientation and confusion that the film preys upon um so yeah for me that that's that's a nomination that i'm drawn to but obviously i am also biased similar to theo with last black yeah i I, I have to say i think my instincts would be for fortune color um i think at the end of the day the 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 sort of as i said before the non-linear narrative the, the kind of this weaving together of different scenes where you're kind of shifting between different realities almost um, it's just done very well. And I think that's a very difficult thing. I can just imagine, did Shane Carruth himself edit it? Or? Was it? Yeah. I believe so. Mm. Yeah, he did everything yeah, with that, that film. And David Lowry mm. as well. He did One it with, with, army. with David Lowry. Lowry. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it would be such a daunting task, like approaching that as an edit. Um, I mean, I, Last Batman in San Francisco, again, I really, I, I think it comes together with the cinematography in this way. It kind of this quirky offbeat. I think I I would say it's something that we have seen before in cinema to a certain degree. That kind of slightly A twenty four offbeat, like off kilter, mm-hmm. like a bit, little bit quirky, a little bit like holding shots for a little bit longer than you'd expect them to, um, and then having you know these kind of slower slower moments as well. Um, not that that's there's anything wrong with that, but um, I, I I think that. Mm. Upstream color editing definitely did stand out as something that was just on, on Shane Carruth. So he did the score, directed, edited, and he was a engineer before he started film making. And he was an acting mm. in it as well. And he was yeah, an act- yeah. and he's an actor. Yeah, and he and he was the he was the, he he is yeah, an um, auteur. The modern just, day um... Leonardo the cap. What? Modern day Luthier? Galileo. I'm not sure where you're going with that. But just uh, Symbio. Modern day Jackie Chan. Just going back to Symbio. (laughs) I I, I think we always want to to resist taking films out of their time. But when you think about what um, William Greaves was doing with Symbio, this is in the 60s with his in editing, which was really inventive. It's not something that people were used to seeing, which is part of the reason that it, I don't think he was able to get a theatrical release for it. Um, so, I, yeah, I think he did something really important there with that film. Yeah, it's a good case. It is a good and case. I think it does merit recognition. Um, it'd be nice to, like, think about some of the films surrounding surrounding it, in, like, in that time period, like, Nothing does spring to mind for me is, is like, you know, did they do behind the scenes back then? John Luke Goddard. True. Yeah, that's French. Mm. Is that not like. Well, I, I, I don't. French New. It, no. it, I mean, it felt very French. Oh, right. I, I, don't, I don't think the editing. That guy loves to cart and go, whoa, wee, whoa, what Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't like deconstructionist in the same way that William Greaves was. Exactly. But I wasn't saying it was deconstructionist, but the editing style, that kind of like. Ooh, what wow, about Darren Aronofsky? Was... He's all about that. He wasn't <laughs> taking. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. He was a cinematic experience to give you He wasn't making his... films in the 1960s, Theo. Oh, you're talking about free, free William Greaves. I was going for some of his influences. Well, just anything around that time that yeah. kind of 
I would would say that French New Wave was very different in that it was sort of a new style of editing with the jump cuts and so forth, but it wasn't, it didn't have the intention. It was a very different intention from that which uh, William Greaves was trying to to use it for. So I think they were very different. I mean, maybe if you look at, I think where you would see that would be in like in documentary, right? So uh, I guess, what was that? The Woodstock documentary kind of of plays with that. Have you guys seen that? Um, is that is that Scorsese? I feel like that was Scorsese. In my head, that was Scorsese, but maybe. I don't know. But um, that that like plays with that that kind of um, ob doc uh, kind of camera moving around behind the scenes, looking uh, very fly on the wall uh, okay. shooting style. Well, let's um, make a decision, boys. We we don't have to. Yeah, let, let's make a decision. Yeah, uh, I think Nathan you I should have the most weight. Yeah, Nathan. I'll. I'm. I'll. You know what? Drum Nathan, I'll actually pass you the envelope. I'll, I'll pass you the envelope with the award in, and you just start opening that. Thank now, you very much. And I'll, I'll pick up my drumsticks, and say, the award, the best editing, goes to Symbio Psycho Taxiplasm. Brilliant. Well, there we Back go. Back of the net. Well, well thought, well thought discussion there. It's very close. Um, so let's uh, move on to our next category, which is we're back on the old musical train again. Uh, this time with best song. Uh, now the re- we specifically chosen the word best song because uh, to avoid anyone getting Johnny Greenwood did we've allowed songs which are in films in certain moments in films which aren't necessarily composed or produced for the film so it can be any song featuring within that film um and you'll you'll see that as it appears in the following nominations so at first we have um smoke gets in your eyes uh, by the platters and that featured in the film terrorizers we have um a very iconic moment in the film beau travail uh, where we hear the song Rhythm of the Night uh, by Corona. We have um, New World by Bjork, which of course featured in Dancer in the Dark. Um, And last but not least, um, certainly for Theo anyway, we have The Last Black Man in San Francisco's uh, legendary number, San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair, um, which I believe was sung by Daniel Herskidal. Let's start with uh, New World Bjork, shall we? Sure. Um, Dancer in the Dark. I believe that's Nathan's nomination. So why don't you tell us more about it? Right. Um, so New World is the last track um, in the film Dancer in the Dark. Um, we've discussed the film briefly uh, in this episode. At the end of the... I mean, spoilers alert. Um at the end of the film, Bjork is sentenced to the death sentence. She's sentenced to, to hanging, death by hanging. She's sentenced to the death <laughs> sentence. <laughs> she, she's given the death sentence and uh, uh, the death sentence is hanging. Um, we watch her walk uh, through the halls of the... What did you, what did you call them? The place of the death sentence? Prison. No, there's like a special name Prison for an execution hall. place. Anyway, as Bjork walks towards the gallows she sings this song 72 steps um which is another kind of musical number and that's the last like proper musical number of the film 
Um, and then as she gets put, she gets the rope put around her neck. And it's a very striking image of like her. And she, she's, when you first think she's at peace, she suddenly has this kind of outcry and she starts crying for her son. And it's, it's like a really tra- like tragic scene. I, I don't think it has been nominated for Best Lasting Picture, but it really is deserving of a mention, just this scene in itself. Like for me, I, I, I think something that Lars von Trier does really well is these moments of like just pure, like guttural, uh like existential horror you know as you see this like poor lady like facing her death um and then she before she's hung she sings this this song um new world and there's no backing music no backing track no instrumentals no i don't even know i think the only sound on the the only sound that you can hear is the kind of ambience the kind of dim hum of a uh the electric output in the in the room um, and then Bjork giving this final uh, solo, um, and then she's she's hung, and it's it's it's, it's horrible. It's it's a horrible scene, but it stuck with me. Um, yeah, that's why I nominated her. Okie dokie, thanks Nathan. Um, so let's let's move on to Beau Travai, Rhythm of the Night by Corona. Oh yeah, so that was my nomination. Uh, I just thought the ending scene was such a powerful scene. Uh, you have throughout the film the troop, uh, everything they do from like ironing to the kind of like martial arts practices. It's all so regimented, so structured. And then you have this whole thing culminating in the final scene uh, uh, where Gallup, uh, played by Dennis Levant, a really great performance. Um, kind of frees himself from, I guess, so throughout the film, the trooper in this kind of set rhythm, everything they do is rhythmic, but it's to this same static beat. And then in the final scene, you kind of get this massive energetic release um, where Galoop is um, freed and kind of can dance to his own rhythm uh, as he dances wildly to rhythm rhythm of the night by corona and i think the song itself captures uh the ending so well um it's this disco track i mean everyone's heard it right really catchy um it's upbeat really energetic mirroring mirroring dennis levant's own energy um but i also think it captures the other side of that in that uh we have that close-up of galoop's tattoo which says serve the good and die um or something serve the good and die uh which kind of shows that well the release this release this freedom comes in the form of suicide which adds this whole sadness to the ending um which i think is also reflected in the song which although very upbeat also has um quite sad undertones uh, I don't know, some of the lyrics in it, such as like sunshine in an empty place, uh, round and round we go. Like, it's definitely uh, not this great upbeat song that it may sound on first listening to. Um, so, yeah, I'd just say that scene makes the film for me. And yeah, that's why I'd give it. Nice. Okay. Thank you. Um... Let's move on to Smoke Gets In Your Eyes 
Uh, oh right, yeah, that's me. Oh, just another shout out. All of these songs I think are available on Reason Records mm-hmm. playlist on Spotify. But yeah, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by the Platters. I mean, it's a song I think it's probably up there with one of these songs that's been played in the most number of films. It's almost got its own cinematic universe. I think the first time I heard it was in a Fred Astaire film, Sign of My Age, and uh, also in American Graffiti, uh, George Lucas's film from the 70s. But here, I mean, it always, it's a a song that evokes sort of nostalgia, um, themes of... um, relationships breaking down delusions about relationships we've all been there haven't we well maybe not all of us but in this film it really evokes that sense of misabsent people um it's played by a needle drop starts with a needle drop when a character plays the record which you see on the film and it brings back i think for her the character memories of her daughter's absent father who was a gi in the um, Korean War. Um, And then it cuts, the director cuts to the present and it's about um, a photographer's girlfriend being really angry at him basically looking for a new relationship and she's tearing up all of his photographs. But I actually put a clip of this on our review because it was for me literally a showstopper. I had to stop the film after this song and then go back and play it again. It was that good. So yeah, smoke gets in your eyes, wins it for Okay. And uh, lastly, we have uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, now, of course, many of our listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with the, the famous song. If you're going <laughs> to San Francisco, and I, I sing that because, again, obviously, to avoid uh, copyright issues, um, a very catchy melody, which I know myself, I was I was singing for weeks, if not months, after listening to well, had it on repeat. Uh, watching the film. Um, I did. I should say. I, I should say I uh, <laughs> I previously referred to Daniel Herskadel, uh as the one of the contributors to this uh, piece. He was one, as I said, he actually was a Norwegian jazz musician. So he's the person uh, playing the, I believe it's the horns that you hear in the um, the background to the to the studio recording. However, in the film, the context of this is it's performed by a street performer um, who is again, I think sort of known locally in san francisco and it's quite uh, quite famous at this point uh, his name's michael marshall and also uh is famous for the famous refrain from uh the lenise song i got five on it which again singing for copyright issues but i'm sure you you know the song right Listen with that and I got five. yeah anyway a classic song um so again what i like about this again is it embodies the themes of the last black man in san francisco in that it's relying on sort of local celebrities and uh, the nostalgia for the city it's a film that's made as a sort of grassroots san francisco film and every aspect of the of uh, this song is is sort of embodying that same spirit and, and there's something again that captures that kind of longing for a place oh going to san francisco never been there but you know sounds really good uh, when you listen to the song over and over again so that is all of them let's uh let's go through and discuss um anything in particular striking any of us any any immediate defectors 
compare to other nominations for real firmly uh, stood in our own keeps. I'm not a defector at all, but I have the same. Uh, I was also humming the San Francisco cover uh, well after watching the film, and it's firmly cemented its place in my head. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's a great song and really um, captures the themes of the film. Interesting. I mean, I liked it, but I preferred other aspects of the um, of the film soundtrack. That's Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, I would be, you know, be remiss of me not to say that at the time of watching Beau Travai, that final scene with the dance record playing, I mean, it has to be one of cinema's great endings, doesn't it? That sense of release. I thought that was a tremendous song and it stayed with me for, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. a long time afterwards. I I have to agree with you. I think, and I, I saw a lot of discussion about this online as well. Like, is this the greatest ending in cinema history? And I think you're right. It makes a strong case for it, but partly because the film is so tense up to that point And it's so like, Oh, like it's on the, it's all on, it's on a knife edge. And then all of a sudden you get this massive relief at the end. However, I put it to you. If you'd have taken another song, like, for example, uh, Freed from Desire, or <laughs> any other kind of Europop 90s classic, could it could it still go down in history as one of the best endings? Freed I, from I, Desire. Freed from maybe. Desire. Yeah, like, if it came on, like, if that was in there, I would have also been going pretty wild for that ending. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just posing it as a question. Like, how much are we, how much is the scene itself and the context doing the heavy lifting for that song? That's not necessarily to say it shouldn't get the award, but it's just a something. It's just a thought to the mix. Just to add to what Dad was saying about like the rhythm of the night, just and to pull in the what I was saying earlier about how it's all about this kind of regimented approach to like the troop. Everything they do is all structured to this like beat of the drum kind of thing, and then suddenly. I don't know, he's allowed to, like, he's free to dance his own dance kind of thing. Uh, And also, I think, again, uh, going back to, I think, Rhythm of the Night captures that it's both this really upbeat, uplifting ending, but with those uh, kind of dark connotations. Um, It's also quite bittersweet in a way. Can you imagine if it had been Barbie Girl? Isn't there a theory that he's, like, dead? (laughs) Isn't there a theory that that, yeah. that, that is I like just that's just a dream, like a dream, and he's he's dying? Yeah, he like, could be in heaven in a in a Euro that's... in a Euro club. Yeah, that's his street. soul dancing. Um, uh, right. Do you wanna? Should we go for? It's almost Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, well, where where are we where are we landing on this? I mean, I'm gonna go for last to say Black Man just because it's I've been humming it as you said I've had it on repeat. Mm. Had it, it's gonna be on the playlist. Repeat since yesterday when you watched it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have to say, New World. It's a great again. It's it's one for me where the moment supersedes the song itself. For me, 107 Steps would have been a better nomination because I think that that song really stuck in my head. The way she's sort of getting through the trauma of walking towards her execution with um, with a song, uh, and that kind of typifies the whole film. Uh, but yeah, obviously, also love San Francisco as I nominated it. So, any last uh, 
I'm a big fan of San Francisco, um, but I've got to say, when I think of Beau Travai, I think of Rhythm of the Night, and that's why it takes the cake for me. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't look as though anyone's particularly keen on Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, apart from me, and I think that may well be a personal (laughs) thing, but... Yeah, rhythm <laughs> of the night. rhythm of the night. I mean, I was going to say, is, is, the night. I mean, is it a bit what was your nomination, Nathan? Go on, Nathan. Uh, New, New World, World. Bjork. Bjork. Yeah. Bjork. It was all right. So what do we do here? We have a we've got a good Nathan. old-fashioned standoff. Someone's going to either have to convince someone to to defect or just pa- flip a coin. Pass me the envelope. Why would I pass it to you? Well, I'm, I'm happy to give it to. I'm happy to give it. You said both survive, but I wasn't going to pass you. Callum, who's your? Who are you giving it to? If not, um... if not my own, yeah. Oh, you checkmated me there. It, yeah, it's got to be both survive every time. Well, it? there we go then. It's both survive. Take get the envelope out. Yeah, I I think so. Get the envelope. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> Oh, great, Nathan. It brings me great pain to take an award away from Last Black Man, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Or the one film which had music as a very... Uh, well, I guess Doctor the Dark. Uh, music Room. Not a single nomination uh, for the music. <laughs> no. Not a best... Didn't, didn't even have a Didn't have a best song, that's sure. Is that a joke? <laughs> the whole thing is a song. Right. Anyway, I'm gonna hand the envelope over now because uh, this this uh, yeah, this get it out, get it out, get it out. Yeah, there you go. Take that, and uh, if you wouldn't mind doing the honors and opening this up, I will now uh, say that the award, the best song, reads on film season one, goes to oh, Beau Travai. <laughs> what? Wow, that's Beau not a song. Oh yeah, rhythm of the night, Corona. The rhythm of the night, Beau yeah. There we go. Fantastic. Uh, well, we've got one more. Um, I've got some quesadillas that need eating. We do. Best lasting image. We have uh, one final category here. Um, the next category we have is best lasting image. <laughs> now, lasting image again. It's a bit of a deliberately vague category. This is. Not it's not best shot. It's not best scene. It's this is the best, well, best lasting image. The image that's really stuck with, uh, stuck with the reads uh, across all twenty four films. But it's a culmination of a sequence, right? It's not an image on its own. Could be an image on its own. Could be a sequence. Could yeah. Be whatever. Okay. Whatever you want. Um, best moment. So, um, I'm gonna go through the list of. Um, in fact, what I'll do in this because I think it's actually probably better. Because there's not really a name for each of these uh, sh- shots or sequences, so what I'll do is I'll just I'll just say the name of the nomination, and we'll go straight to the person who nominated it, and they can explain the shot in particular that they're mentioning or that they're nominating rather. Um, so yeah, let's start with uh, the last black man in San Francisco. Um, once again, <laughs> I, I wonder who I'll be going to to, exp- to explain this one. Well, this was actually hard because I was really between this and the ending of Time of the Wolf uh, and the ending of... Um, no, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, mine goes to uh, lasting... My... Wait, 
the lasting image mine of goes to, Yeah, mine goes to the last black man of San Francisco, specifically the shot, I'll keep this brief, the shot of Jimmy Fails uh, skating down the, the California Street, um, the huge slope, uh, iconic um, part of, Calif- of um, San Francisco, uh, major street in San Francisco, uh the shot is this kind of wide shot uh it captures a lot of different uh important things in san francisco so you have like the cable car going on you have uh the golden gate bridge it's a tram isn't it cable car car, tram same thing uh you have and and then obviously the street itself uh you have the score it's a mate like perfectly um fits in with the scene um and yeah it's just such a iconic shot uh the symmetry of the street is fantastic it's just really well shot weirdly there's an i i I also watched this again recently weirdly there's an advert for policy genius on a massive billboard to the to the left hand side Uh... i don't know if that's a deliberate whether they pay, it's the always deliberate. Bro. It's actually there, and it's like a, me- a reference to like startups and gentrification, and like obviously, I think I read somewhere that one in ten uh, people living in San Francisco is a billionaire now, and so again, that kind of like startup culture, which obviously is a big takeover. Of, mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, one in ten people in San Francisco is a, bi- a billionaire. Because no, be no, no, no one. I thought no one lives like no one actually lives in San Francisco unless. I don't know. That's yeah. what I heard. No one actually lives there unless you're like super rich. Everyone lives around that. it. In yeah, all the houses like on the hills. What are they just? They're are they all just that might come the Bay Area, so that's Bay, yeah. San Francisco. But I don't, I don't, anyway, we can yeah. fact check that on Twitter, uh, people. If you know, if you live in San Francisco or you mm. are a billionaire, please uh, send us a tweet. I have a real problem on, in on, San Francisco. Preferably both, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, also, I did check, and you're right, Theo. It's I'm a bit like, like uh, is, it is a cable car, not a tram. Uh, they call them cable cars over there. It's yeah. Americans. Living in San Francisco is a bit like living in Ballon really. these days. <laughs> Wait, could you I'd say it's that, more Jake? like can living say in... Um... Can you say it again, please? I was just saying, Callum, uh, living in San Francisco is a bit like living in Ballon these are you, days. Are you always trying to insinuate that, that you're the last black man of Ballon? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not a billionaire. The sound, the sound board, unfortunately, is broken. So, uh, yeah, that's there we go. <laughs> oh. dad. Okay, next. Okay, right. Also, all, all like golden hour and looks beautiful as well. That, that, that those shots, very, very golden yeah, looking, okay. warm. Oh god, that goes. Sorry. <laughs> right. So <clears throat> next up, we have Dursu. Dursu, yes. Okay, this we've talked about Dursu already, but like, okay. So my let me let me hold on. Let me start with the scene. Chinese Revenant, <laughs> Japanese Russian Revenant, surely. But um, okay, the, the scene I've chosen is the one at uh, near the end of the film. I think just before the final act. I guess you'd probably consider it sort of wrapped into the final act. Is where Dursu, um, Dursu, who is 
himself a, a man who's entrenched in the wild wild life in the in the in nature he lives and breathes it right we see this throughout the film multiple times he's he's so disconnected from the world of the captain of the military man of civilization and you know the kind of you know the yeah the the, the tide of society or at least uh the coming russian society that he um he arrives eventually at the the russian uh, military man's hat home after losing his eyesight um and he's staying there because he can no longer survive in the wild he's had his uh, achilles heel cut um as a result of uh you know um helping the uh the captain and you see Dursu in this living room. I'm, I'm referring to one particular scene. There's a whole, um, there's a whole sequence of scenes uh, in this house. But there's one particular scene where they're all sat in the living room. Um, the family of the captain, so it's him, his wife, and his kid. Uh, the kid sat on the piano, and the uh, him, the captain, and his wife are just sat in the room. And Dursu is sat in the corner, right in the corner of the frame. Uh, on the floor next next to the fire um and i just think this this scene where dursu just finally realizes that he can no longer live um with the captain no longer live in this house as i think i, I put down here imprisoned in a world of right angles you know a man who's used to nature organic everything is kind of flowing and you know he's been imprisoned in this world where it's just straight lines um I just think the scene plays out so powerfully. Um, it's all this one shot, beautifully composed. Um, and I, I think it just summates the movie, you know? he At the end of the day, he's a fish out of water. He can't survive here. Um, and it's tragic, really, because he can no longer survive in, you know, where he really feels at home. So, yeah, I mean, that's that would be my lasting moment. That image, that image of Dursu sat in the corner, uh, wrapped in a towel by the fire because if you remember rightly he always used to sit by the fire the captain would sometimes join him by the fire when they were out in the wild and it's this this fire behind bars it's this longing it's i don't know i just found a beautiful beautiful moment fantastic um okay well let's move on to our next nomination which is uh los olvidados or the young and the damned by louise bunuel now um we talked about this film briefly um in I believe it was Best Picture, um, and it didn't get many other nominations. But I I did have to say I really enjoyed the film, and I think there's something particularly striking about this film. And I am about to drop very very big spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film and intend to watch it, please do skip ahead like thirty seconds because this is a huge huge spoiler. Um, but at the very end of the film, we've been following this sort of quasi Dickensian turned uh, nasty horrific traumatic childhood um upbringing of uh the main character of the film whose name i must say escapes me uh, but we sort of throughout the film you sort of get these moments where he's corrupted he's brought down he commits loads of quite grotesque and uh criminal acts um and there's this sort of will he won't he re get redeemed will he have his moment where he's reunited with his mother will he will he make it out of this um you know poverty stricken neighborhood and and make something of himself um and the ending of the film really gives us a resounding no um where of, of course those of you who've seen it will remember that the final shot of the film is the main 
character's body being thrown off the back of a donkey onto a pile of rubbish. Um, I, I honestly can't think of many other films, if any at all, where the last shot of the film is the character sort of not dying in a heroic or dramatic way where, you know, like they're pinned up against the wall in a Christ-like shape or they die in battle or they, or, you know, they die like Romeo and Juliet on an altar, but actually just their, their corpse being thrown onto a scrap heap. I think it really typifies what that film is trying to hammer home to the audience, which is that society has sort of forgotten in the the, the uh, Los Olvidados Spanish translation or the damned in the English translation, all of these uh, children to uh, death. Um, so yeah, very striking image for me. Um, and one of the biggest takeaways from that film and the season. Um, so yeah, lastly, let's uh, talk about uh, Dad's your nomination, which is uh, Bo Trabai, I believe. Yeah, well, how to follow that? I mean, well, Bo Trabai, I mean, we talked about it with uh, Best Cinematography, and Nathan specifically talked about the colour palette of um, Agnes Goddard and how beautiful the film looked. I mean, the cinematography itself was breathtaking. The scene I want to nominate is really, well, in a way, it's a kind of fusion of scenes. It's when the soldiers are out in the desert and they are performing these ritualistic exercises um, which the director, Claire Denise, she sort of choreographs, choreographs these exercises and drills. Um, and at first, they seem like normal workouts, but over time, it veers into something much stranger than that. They are ritualistic, almost hallucinatory, um, mirage-type sort of tableau of movements of the body, which become quite sort of mesmerising in a way. Um, it's sort of like a fusion between dream sequences and reality. And with the light, the sort of shimmering shimmering and simmering um, sort of light from the desert, it really sticks with you. I mean, Claire Denis, she said about this film, capturing bodies on film is the only thing that interests me. And I can't really think of anyone who's managed to achieve that in the way that she has done. So, yeah, Beautravai, that gets my nomination. Okay, uh, let's open it to the floor then. Um, Nathan, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on those other films beyond Dersu? Okay, um, I mean, Beautravai, I, I like that that quote you left us with there, Dad. Um, she, she's, only, would you say she's only concerned with capturing bodies on film. It's almost like it makes me think of almost like a wild, like wildlife uh, filmmaking. It's like just, just, pe- just like people, like just being people, um, very raw and humanistic. Um, and it is a, and it is a lasting image. You know, it sticks out to me, um, and it's kind of burnt into my, uh, into my, into my retina. Um, we got Last Black Man in uh, Fran- uh, San Francisco. I mean, yes, the skateboard scene was a great scene. I think because because the nomination is for last like lasting image. Obviously, that scene came very early in the film, um, and although it was a great scene, I don't think I don't know if it would necessarily be the scene that I take away as as my lasting image from that film. 
Um, and I think it does so make the film very well, but I, I, I think as an opening shot, it's, it's establishing as opposed to like leaving you with something. But again, it's still a very beautiful scene. Um, um, and Los Ovidalos, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a brutal moment. And again, one that sticks with you uh, and leaves you feeling a little bit rotten inside. Mm. Um, also, I mean, that, that wasn't a rhetorical question, by the way. If you can think of any films where that happens at the end. I mean, again, we're opening ourselves up to big spoilers for our listeners, so maybe don't, but I honestly can't think of a more mm. brutal main character death. Oh, right. Dancer it's just dark. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a very blindingly obvious, if you'll excuse the crass pun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that but... is brutal. Boom, well, it's it. only because that was the other one I had in mind when I was thinking of lasting yeah, images. Yeah. That is. I think, that, I think, yeah, the only thing that slightly. I, and not detracts from its power necessarily, but it, because it, because it's such a big build up, you know, from like an hour into the film that she's on mm. death row, mm. and obviously you get this big build up scene. It's not as like shocking. I think the the main character in Lasso of is he's dead in one scene, and then the next scene, is it's like it's almost it just happens. Shot. I was going to say one that springs to yeah. mind. It's slightly slightly different, but on the kind of just a sudden death is uh, no country for old men when we kind of have that protagonist switch. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, but with yeah, I do. But with the Young and the Damned, I mean, despite the fact, I mean, it's mm. a very bleak film. Um, as I mentioned when we were talking about it in the context of best film, but despite that, we're all because it's kids. We're always hoping that there's going to be a glint or glimmer of hope at the end of the film, but it just never comes. And then it's almost like he's really punch you in the face it takes you off it scene. takes you off guard um i think it's it's because yeah. i yeah it i didn't see flipping. i actually just didn't see that coming dodge in the dark it's almost like a oh is something going to happen but you, in the back of your mind especially because it's the last one you kind of know it's going how it's going to end up mm, um true true whereas with los Dallas, it's almost just yeah it's just this sudden like oh okay god everyone's damned everyone be damned um Anyone else? Yeah, I'll just say anyone, as well, um, very travile, yeah. very striking image. Uh, <laughs> sorry to cut you off before, Dosu. <laughs> Dosu? Dosu. Um, yeah, very striking image in Beau Travile. Uh, also, I think part of it is lasting because it's such a... Uh, it's almost otherworldly in that it's shot the way it's shot it could be it feels like you could be anywhere um and the focus which puts all the focus onto just uh the actions of this troop and yeah i don't know i i'd say i'd probably um go to move to that one and say that was probably the most lasting image for me yeah right you're right yeah Yeah, I mean they're all they are all great scenes. Just going back to um, Theo's nomination, I mean the shot of uh, Jimmy Fails skating down uh, Nob Hill is, you know, I mean it's amazing to watch. We've put the clip on our review if uh, listeners want to have a look at that, so you can see it. It's a it's an amazing shot. 
Right, I guess... Any comments any, on Dersu? Yeah. Oh, Dersu... Again, good. for me, it's not a lasting shot, but I do remember that whole that whole section of the film where he's trapped in the real world, like you said, a prisoner of right angles, whatever. I mean, it, it is really good. A little bit liminal, in, Imprisoned in a world of right angles. Exactly, yeah. Um, and it's very sad as well. Uh, it almost reminds me of like, it, 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 it I reminds think me of like a painting, it's... like a, what's that guy, that American, not, I'm not thinking of Norman Rockwell, the guy, what's the guy who did the yeah, one with the Ed... two people outside the Hopper. house? Edward Hopper. No, 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 the guy, the guy with the two, the, like the family outside the farmhouse. Oh, you mean American oh, Gothic? American Gothic, The big, yeah, the big, one. the big Is it Whistler? German one. Is it Whistler? Uh, anyway. Waterhouse or something? I, I... No, 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 it's no. Um, Grant Wood. Grant, Grant Wood, that's it. Yeah, reminded me of that. Yeah, the little. man it, and the it, woman standing outside the house. I think it cap it, it does capture something about I don't know a, a theme that um, I don't know I I don't think I've seen cap like captured that well in film before, which is what we've what modern what, what we lose over modernity and this there is this sort of connection with 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 our, with nature that that we've lost mm. um, and you see you see this you see this family who. On its own, it would just be a happy image of a family enjoying themselves, the kids on the piano. But then Durst, who sat there in the corner, is just this reminder of, like, man, look, like, I, I don't know. It's a relic, a relic, a of, relic the of, a, of, a, of a Yeah, of a lost... A relic yeah. of the past. Yeah, I mean, it's a great scene, Nathan, but for me, in that film, there were so many great scenes, that one didn't particularly stand out. I think all we all, all we can do is recommend house. that people actually go and watch it because oh, it's, it's a must a, watch. Yeah, it's a great film. Fantastic film. Okay, well, should we let's, get to the yeah, let's come to our yeah. difficult decision of coming up with the last uh, the lasting image that was the best. Um, where are we landing? I'm still stuck with boat. I'm still stuck with Bo Travai, actually. I I, I would I would be very happy to give it to Bo Travai just because. I would yeah, also I, give I, it to In terms of fitting that category of lasting image, it really is. It really is. Wow, that was a quick, a quick give triple, it to a quick triple tick. Uh, I guess I've got no choice. Once again, you force, you force my, you've rent, you've clutched the envelope from my cold dead hands. Uh, I'll pass it over to uh, Stephen as you have, have yet to open one of these lovely gold uh, embossed envelopes with the, with the reads on film logo which you can see on our Twitter page, uh, embossed on it. So, Dad, if you'd like to do the honours, um, and I will put a, my fingers to the drums once again and say that the winner of Best Lasting Image goes to... Goes to Beau Travai by Claire Denis. There we go. Awesome Wales. It sounded, it sounded like nice. you were waiting for a moonlight wait, uh, moment there, but uh, no, it is Beau Travai. I mean, like, oh, good day. Very good. <laughs> wow. I can't resist. What did What did you say about Moonlight? Did you not see the Moonlight Oscars? No. Oh, don't worry. It's interesting you're saying about Moonlight, because Mo- there's a s- d- direct link between Moonlight and Beau Travai. I think Beau Travai was of great influence for Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. Um, there's a great interview between Claire Denise and Barry Jenkins. Oh, good. That viewers should. Yeah, well, we'll put a link in the show watch. notes to that uh, later on, as as many other distinguished podcasters do. So, um, moving swiftly on, I'm afraid that does conclude our almost all of our uh, reads on film awards of season one. 
However, we do have one surprise bonus award, which comes as part of uh, the Reads on Film's first feature, podcast feature. Um, This segment of the podcast we have affectionately named Reads Readers Reply. So, thank you, thank you. So, um, oh, that was the best will... production of the entire episode. Thank you. Um, I'll hand over um, to Stad slash Stephen to talk us through this uh, special reader contribution award. Right. Well, this award category really is as it says on the tin. It's an award given to the reader who has made the most striking and or significant contribution to our reviews over the last few months. And we have two nominations, actually. Um, Callum has informed me that because of doxing, I'm really not sure what that is. I can't name the uh, nominees directly um, but our first nominee uh, his name his full name is Mark and his surname begins with C so Mark C is our first nomination and he um, well he got into a spat with Callum on our comment section around the film unsurprisingly Ennis Main. Now, it came as a bit of surprise because we know that Mark is a real fan of Mark Jenkins, particularly his earlier film, Bait, which he absolutely loved. But he was really disappointed by Ennis Main. And uh, for listeners, it's probably worth going worth going back and having a look at the uh, readers' comments there. I felt that they were heading to the situation where, like um, Elon Musk and someone Zuckerberg, I thought they were going to end up having a cage fight. <laughs> <laughs> to sort it out but it all ended very amicably um but uh yeah mark c a great contribution very much in line with the view of our uh turner prize um award giver mark yeah. c mark and c. then the second nominee um james n uh you know who you are james n has given us some fantastic contributions with really thoughtful and insightful comments on our reviews. Not only that, he's actually gone to the trouble of scoring the films himself. Um, he, interestingly, contrasted with Mark's view of Ennis Main, says he loves Mark Jenkin and his hand-developed films, particularly this one. He's seen most of the films in the great season in January of films he curated that influenced him. Um, and saw some more of his work at the even better recent film on film season. So a real fan of Mark Jenkin and, in particular, Ennis Main. So we have two outstanding nominations, and I think we have agreed that the award should be split in a first for Uh Reads on Film, and the award will be going to both of them. I also think... Thank you. I also think that at some point we should try and get them on our review or podcast uh, to make a special appearance. Yeah, so well well done to uh, Mark and James, and thank you again for your contribution. If you would like to feature on Reads Readers Replies, then please tweet at us, send us a voice note, uh, call us up, 
0208675763. You can call us on or write to us. You can, yeah, we're, we're on, on Substack. Leave something we're in the comments. We're on Twitter. We're on anywhere, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Snapchat, everything. Um, thank you again for listening. Um, it's been a it's been a wild ride. What about our sponsors? Uh, our sponsors will be in the show notes um, until they start paying us actual money. Right. Um, but yeah, anyone anyone have any closing remarks or anything they'd like to say? Any objections? I'm no, just, it's, it's, I really it's enjoyed the great season. Show. And I was just say I really enjoyed the season. I'm cannot wait for the next. Raring to go. I think season more two. Podcasts as well. I already know. Also, what my please first send us some recommendations. Uh, it may not be a year until we do another podcast. Who knows? We might start doing some occasional features, some a bit of this, a bit of that. Please, as always, give us some feedback, and uh, we'll be in touch. Could do a weekly. Yeah, we'll, let's see how it goes. Yep. Season two will be with you in a couple of weeks, I think. But we may have some interesting content before that. Yes. Well, Woo. thank you very much for listening. <laughs> that makes the content sound <laughs> some interesting content. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everyone. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's goodbye from Theo. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Dad or Stephen. <laughs> Stephen. And it's goodbye from Steve. Is and it's goodbye from Stephen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nathan. Bye now. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That was I've awful. Got, I've should we quickly do, do, do that again? Should we quickly do that? It's not again? challenge. No, no, just the good, it's uh, goodbye. Okay. Okay. Just play this. Play the theme. Play the theme. Hit the theme. You have been listening to Readers on Film. Beau travail for making to this far.